Lord, you've accomplished everything for us. We come to you as people that are on the heels of what has been done for us through Jesus Christ. That's our position this morning. We don't have to prove anything. Um, You have done everything for us on the cross and through your resurrection. So, Lord, because of those great truths that we so often forget, Lord, we pray this morning that you would remind us, that you would refresh us, that we would take hold of your words in ways that we haven't yet before. So, Lord, do that work in us. Lord, allow your Holy Spirit to continue to transform us by your word because it's only a work that he can do. So, Lord, we affirm that, we acknowledge that, we ask that you would do that and that you would humble us as we come before you and open your word. We pray, all God's people said, amen. All right, well, hey, grab your Bible, go to Judges, go to the book of Judges. I don't know where to tell you that is. It's sort of near the beginning. You want to go write a few books and you'll hit Judges. It's after Joshua. Um, We're in a series called The God Who Redeems. We're going through stories of the Bible, stories that some of you will have grown up with um, and some of you have just never heard because you didn't come from a church background. You didn't grow up in church. For those of you who are familiar with the stories, the big idea is that we have gotten these stories and we've sort of made much of the characters in the stories, right? So we've kind of, we look at people like Moses and Adam and Eve and Joseph and David, and we, we sort of we may, we, we sort of uh, uh, sort of blow these these dudes up in, into into these big like heroes. And what the big idea behind this series is is we want to remember who the true hero of all the stories of the Bible is, and it's God. And it's the God who redeems, and it's His redeeming work in these stories, which brings us back to the true hero of all the stories, which is God. So when you come to substance, one of the things that we want to do, and it doesn't matter if we're teaching through stories of the Bible or we're teaching through letters in the New Testament, the big idea at the end of all of this is that we want to be drawn closer to the person of God, and most specifically through Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit that He does in our lives to remind us that all I have is Christ. We sang that song last week. So that's the big idea when we take ourselves through any of the narratives of the Bible is that we want to go back to having just a fresh wonder and awe and understanding and knowledge of who God is. Not who these men and women are. These men and women are there to teach us about the redeeming work that God does through them that he also does through us. All right, so that's what we want to walk into as we're going through all of these stories over the next couple of months. And, you know, this morning, man, I, you know, I was praying. We were going to go through the story of Gideon, and we are. We're going to go through, uh, through two chapters that lock us into the story of Gideon. I was going to do it all in one week, and I was praying, and I thought, why am I rushing? I mean, I'm not as good as Jeff Powell. I can't go through 14 chapters in one week like, like that boy did last week. So I thought, you know, I, I'm not that good, so I'm, I'm going to take two chapters and I'm going to split it up, and I'm just so we can really, we can really lock into what God did through this, uh, this, this very interesting judge uh, in the book of Judges. And one of the big things that we're going to look at this morning is that God is peculiar. And maybe that's a strange thing to say about God, but God is peculiar in what he does to our lives and what he does through our lives. He works in ways that we don't really understand, and that bugs you. Because it bugs me. It bugs me that I don't have a handle 
on the way that God works. It's like when a kid is angry or unhappy with a decision you make, and it's because it's basically you're doing what they don't understand that is best for them. And what you wish is that they could just believe you and shut up. That's what you wish. You wish they would just understand that you're going to be working in their lives and you're going to be instructing them and leading them down paths that they just can't comprehend. And in a similar way, God does that to us. And what he's doing in those peculiar times that we can't figure out, he's preparing us. He's preparing us for something. Someone, actually, himself. So God is always doing a work of preparing us for greater work that he has prepared for us. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to find ourselves where Gideon is. We want to find ourselves in the place that we're going to see where Gideon is. And here's the big idea. And this is the big idea for this morning is this, that God's strategy for strengthening our faith is working through our weakness. Working through our weakness to kill our idols so that we live a life of obedience to him. So the big idea is that God's strategy for your life is his life. God's strategy for your life, for my life, is his life. It's seeing that he is stronger than your strength. That he is wiser than your mind. That he is more to be desired than the most desirable thing that you currently have in your life. And this is so important to God that what he does is he weakens us to the point of seeing it, receiving it, and then giving him all the credit for it. And man, all of us this morning are in particular life stages and seasons and situations right now. That's all of you. Some of you, man, are just experiencing some lows right now. Man, you just find yourself on the floor of life. Some of you have just, man, gotten to that place where it has just sunk down and you don't know where there's any more room left to drop. That's some of you. And then there's others of you that just haven't dropped low enough. You're kind of floating. And you're thinking, you know, I'm maintaining this. And it's cool. I'm in this place and it's cool. And, you know, I'm vibing with everybody and life is vibing with me. And I'm just, man, you know, the future is bright. I got to wear shades. And, like, all this kind of stuff is happening in your life. And you haven't really gone low enough. But for all of us, typically what's happening, no matter what life stage or season we're in, is we're looking for some sort of an answer, aren't we? You're looking for an answer when, in effect, really, you should be asking a question. And when you do ask a question, when we do find ourselves in a place and we ask a question, it's usually this question. It's usually, what is God doing in my life? God, what are you doing in my life right now? And most of the time, we literally have no idea. We have no idea what God is doing in our lives. So the better question for us to ask is this. What does God want done in my life? So we ask God, what are you doing? And the better question to ask is, what does God want done in my life? Two different questions. And he has peculiar strategies for accomplishing that. But make no mistake about one thing about God. Is that he is jealous for his rule in your life. God is jealous about the place that he has in your life. He wants to kill your idols, and he wants to become the object of your affection and your passion. 
and your life's goals and your life's dreams. In fact, if we go back to Exodus, you can see what I'm driving at here. And let me just give you a little setup uh, to what I'm saying. Moses, okay, you remember Moses? He's the guy that God uh, called to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Man, they were in bondage. They were in slavery. God says, Moses, you're the guy. You're the guy. I'm going to take you. I'm going to bring. I'm going I'm to have you grab hold of the people of Israel. And we're just going to drive out from the Egyptians. I'm going to bring you into a land that I just have just been waiting for you to conquer. It's all there for you. You just need to obey me and go after it. And I'm going to give it to you. So what happened was as, the, uh, as Moses was bringing the children of Israel out of, out of Egypt. And they're on their journey to this land. It's just everything goes wrong. The whole time. Things are going wrong. The people don't trust Moses. The people don't trust God. The people are wondering why they're out in the middle of this wilderness in this desert. They have no idea what God is doing. They don't have any idea what God is doing. Even though God told them what he was going to do and what he was going to accomplish in their life. So Moses had gone up to a mountain because Moses was one of these guys in the Old Testament that actually talked to God, and God gave him instruction and direction. So Moses had gone to the mountain to receive God's commandments. And when he comes back down the mountain, he sees that his sidekick, all right, the guy that kind of did a lot of his speaking, uh, his worship pastor, a guy named Aaron, man, he comes down off the mountain. He looks down. He sees his worship guy, Aaron. He sees all the people, and he sees that they've They bought a nice, crazy sound system. They bought a killer new lighting rig. They got a sweet new digital sound console. And they capped it off by creating this ridiculously awesome visual of a golden calf, like on the screen, right? So Moses comes down the mountain, and this is the scene that he sees. He catches a glimpse of the worship gig that's happening with the children of Israel as he's up talking to God, getting the commandments that God has given them to obey him. And he comes down and this is what he's faced with. And dude becomes furious. I mean, he's, he's watching. I mean, God is saying, these are the commandments I'm giving you. And if you obey these commandments, man, this is how you are going to experience life This is how you are going to experience my hand of grace upon you. And he comes down, and this is what he's faced with. And like most of us, when we lose our tempers, he wants to throw something, right? But the only thing he has are these tablets that God wrote all the commandments on. So he throws those things down, and they break in half. The day ends, now listen, the day ends with 3,000 people dying because they chose a different God than the true and living God to be the object of their worship. I mean, it wasn't much better for the rest of the people because God wanted to obliterate them too. But Moses, he intercedes, he pleads with God to have mercy. God ends up relenting. So this is what happens. God calls Moses back with the mountain, gives him a couple of new tablets, and by tablets, I mean stone tablets, not iPads. And then he tells Moses to pass this Along to the people. He says, oh, by the way, Mo, when you go back down there, here's the word. I gave you all the stuff on the tablets, but tell them this before you get started with all the long stuff. He says, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. That's the word. That's what he tells Moses to tell the people. And just let that sink in for one second. I mean, let that sink in. I mean, God renames himself 
for the people of Israel and for what he wants Moses to communicate to them what his name is. I mean, God is a lot of things, isn't he? And when we center in on his character and attributes, man, we describe him in certain ways typically. We describe him as gracious. We describe him as merciful and kind and compassionate and patient. But we typically don't add the word jealous to that list. Like, like the series is not called The Jealous Who Redeems, right? Like we don't typically go there. Like, when we, like, like we just sang that song, Oh God. We could have said, Oh Jealous. But we didn't do that. But it says here that that's one of God's names. And here's what's frightening. The God we just sang to a minute ago is the same God who is also known as Jealous and hasn't changed a micron Whatever a micron is, one of you guys are going to come up and tell me what that is. But he hasn't changed a micron since the days of Moses. So what we're going to learn today is that God wants to kill your idols. He wants to be the object of your affection. He wants to strengthen your faith through your obedience to him. And he has very, very peculiar ways of getting you to the place where he will enter your life to accomplish this, all right? So let's go to Judges 6. The setup for this is that God, at some point, after the Israels had taken the promised land, he basically set up judges for them to come and rule over them, protect them against uh, enemies that were raiding the country, and he set them up to do exactly what their name implies, to judge the people and to enforce some of the laws that he had given them. This was before Israel had kings, all right? So when we start in, with uh, Judges chapter 6, what we're going to learn is that Gideon is one of these dudes that God had called and raised up eventually to lead the nation of Israel. And this is what it says, and here's the setup. 6 verse 1, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. And what you got to understand right there is God had brought the nation of Israel years ago to conquer the enemies that inhabited the land that God had for them. And now they are punking out. They're hiding. Like they're literally creating caves to hide out in because this, this, uh, this uh, enemy nation, the Midianites, are going after them. Verse 3, for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came. Here's what I want you to focus on right here, verse 6. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Verse 7. When the people of Israel, when they cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Verse 10, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not 
fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. There it is, boom, right there. Two things to take note of in those opening verses. Number one, Israel was brought low in verse 6, and in verse 10, they had not obeyed God's voice. And when it says Israel is brought low, what it really means is that they were made small. This conquering nation that the Lord had raised up to defeat the enemies of the Lord had now been reduced to this tiny, ineffective nation that was hiding and cowering in dens in the mountains. And so what we see as we get into verse 11 is that God calls a man to lead Israel out of the oppression that they're experiencing with the Midianites. And the man he calls is a dude named Gideon. When you look there in verse 11, it tells us that the angel of the Lord came to Gideon, who was a guy that was hiding. He was beating out wheat in a wine press, all right? So you got to picture, you got you to get sort of an imagery going on here, where this is a dude, he's part of the smallest tribe of Manasseh in the nation of Israel, and he's sitting there beating out wheat in a wine press, hiding underground, just so that when the Midianites come and descend upon them, they're not going to get his food. Right? So this is what it's come to. This is what it's come to. And God calls Gideon, and he comes to him, and he says this, right? And you got to lock in to how God can be humorous sometimes. If God invented humor, it means that he should be the most humorous person that has ever existed. But he's a little more subtle than you and guys like Big R here. But this is what, this is what God says when he comes to Gideon. He says, and again, remember, this is a dude that's like hiding underground, afraid that anybody's going to come knocking, right? The angel of the Lord, who is the Lord, comes to him and says, Lord be with you, O mighty man of valor, right? I mean, you, got, I mean, you can just see Gideon standing there going like, you know, like turning like that, like, are you talking, like, are you talking, he's getting all De Niro on him. Are you talking to me? You know what I mean? And um, then you see the Lord saying, um, actually, uh, yeah, I, I, I am talking to you, O mighty man of valor. Lord be with you. The Lord is with you. I'm here to tell you something about your identity that you don't know yet. And so when we see this word mighty man of valor, we want to kind of understand what that means. We want to understand it in the way that we might understand something like a, like a Navy SEAL for us right now, right? So it'd be like a dude coming to me right now. It'd be like God coming to me and saying, Lord be with you, O Navy SEAL Ronnie Martin. And me just looking at him going like, seriously, you really are funny. Like, that's funny. So that's God coming to Gideon telling him that he's somebody that he had no idea that he was, all right? And God kind of has a, has a habit of that, doesn't he? God has a habit of seeing us, who we are, who we're going to be, the sanctified version of ourselves that we have no clue about. And that's how God calls us out of the places that we find ourselves, especially when they are places where we are hiding from him and we are immersed in our own fear. And God comes to us and says, you know, I'm going to pull you out of that, and I'm going to go make you do something that you had no idea that I was ever going to ask you to do. So the Lord comes to Gideon and says, Lord be with you, O mighty man of valor. It's comical. There couldn't have been any less a mighty man of valor than Gideon at that time. And then we see verse 13, Gideon calls God on his faithfulness. He said, 
here's the thing, God. If you're really with us, then why has all this stuff happened to us? So Gideon just goes right back. Like, I mean, it just doesn't seem like it like phases him. He doesn't even hit the mighty man of valor thing. He says, you just said, Lord, with us, and it doesn't look like you're with us. Because I'm down here beating wheat in a wine press. I want to know where you've been. I want to know where you've been because it doesn't really feel like you're with us. And in fact, when I hear the stories of our fathers and all the mighty deeds that you did for us, all I can think of is those are the glory days of the past because I'm not seeing anything like that happen right now. All I know is that I'm fearing for my life and I'm doing everything I can just to make sure that we have food that's not going to get stolen by an enemy nation. And God's just undeterred. He just goes, yeah, so here's the thing, Gideon. That's cute. Uh, Verse 14. But what I want you to do is go in this might of yours. Again, I mean, I visualize the angel of the Lord, who we we realized down the road was actually God himself, having a little bit of a smirk on his face. Maybe I shouldn't push it that far. But I kind of see him just kind of smirking at Gideon going, yeah, all right, pal. But here's the thing. I want you to go in this might of yours and save Israel. And remember, I'm the one that's sending you. Like, you don't have to start sweating this out because it's not like I'm just dropping you out there and then I'm absent and then I'm leaving. God also saves, secures, and sustains the ones that he sends, right? He has us. When God sends us, when he calls us to do something that's out of our comfort zone, that puts us into an identity that we didn't know we had, he's also preparing us for that. And he was also preparing Gideon for this. We don't know how he was preparing Gideon for this. But by the time he came... And unleashed Gideon, Gideon was prepared. He was ready to go. So in verse 14, God says, go in this might of yours and save Israel. Do I not send you? And then Gideon, man, I mean, you got to give it to him. He's kind of bold. So you're seeing, a, you're, you're seeing a little of that, like, well, he's, he's a little fiery. I mean, here he is talking to the angel of the Lord, and he's like, just, he just keeps kind of snapping back to him. You know, I just feel like I'd be like, well, what, what, what do you want me to do? You know, and, and he just kind of just keeps coming back. And he says this in verse 15 through 24. He goes, man, do you know who I am? He goes, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the, the weakest guy in the weakest tribe of the nation of Israel. So, so Gideon did know a little something about his place in the culture and in the society and even the village in which they lived. And he said, I'm the weakest um, And what I need from you, as you're saying all this, is I need a little bit of a sign. So he goes, he prepares a meal. The angel of the Lord says, I'll wait for you. Go prepare that meal. Comes back with the meal. The angel of the Lord says, put it on the rock. He puts the meal on the rock. He pours the broth on the meat that he prepares. And the angel causes fire from heaven to consume it. So that's a sign. So Gideon says, you know, I... I know you're, you're, you're telling me to do this and you're saying who you are, but I, I need to see some evidence that what you're saying is true because I'm weak and I'm fearful. And the angel of the Lord comes and consumes the meal. He doesn't just equip Gideon, doesn't he? I need a sign, Lord. Do you have something for me? Yeah, why don't you take some of this heavy artillery that I have for you? Why don't you take some of this heavy armor that I have for you to protect you? He says, no, 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 no. Let me show you who I am. And in the way that I consume this is the way that I will consume your fear. And this is what the angel of the Lord is trying to show Gideon. And when Gideon sees that, he realizes at that point, as we get into verse 24, that he has seen God. 
that this is no, none other than God. It kind of reminds us of Moses, doesn't it? It's a parallel to Moses and the burning bush when God comes to Moses and Moses realizes that he has come face-to-face with God when God says, take off your sandals, brother, because you're on holy ground. And it was in that moment that Moses realizes who he's speaking to, and it's that moment that Gideon realizes that this is God that is charging him and sending him. And then we get into verse 22. This is how God gives him his first assignment. He says, take two bulls, destroy your father's idols. Take two bulls, put a rope on them, and pull down dad's idols. Because these are the idols now that the entire village, that your clan, that your tribe comes and bow down and worships. So I want you to pull down these idols and then in place of one of the idols where it used to stand, I want you to offer a sacrifice to me with one of the bulls. And Gideon goes, okay. And then it says that he did it at night because he was too afraid that everybody was going to see him. Like who has done that? Like who has like done something that you know was pleasing to the Lord, but man, you don't, it's just the opposite of getting all prideful about it. Like you don't want anyone to see that you took that stand. Like, you're just like, man, I, man I, th- this is going to cost me something because I'm making a stand for the Lord. I'm tearing something down. I'm offending somebody. I'm telling somebody that what they've been going after and who they're worshiping is not the living God. And you know what? There's going to be some wrath coming out on me when I do that. So here's Gideon. What's God doing? Well, God's still preparing him. He's saying, Gideon, pull down those idols. The old man has constructed idols, and it has caused the nation of Israel to worship another god than me. So your first assignment, as I lead you into where we're going, is you got to yank those things down, pal. And he says, okay. And he does it at night when nobody sees. When nobody sees. And it turns out that nobody responded really well to that. They came to his dad and they said, hey, we heard that your son tore down our idols last night, bro. They said, what's the deal with that? You need to get him out here because he's going to have to pay for that with his life. His dad comes to his senses and says, really? Like that's where we're going? We're a nation that used to worship the living God. And what's going to happen is you're going to contend. You're going to stand up. You're going to try to protect these idols that we've been worshiping that we shouldn't be worshiping? He said, no way, man. He goes, if Baal, the God that my son pulled down, if he's really a God, then let Baal contend for himself. Let the God that Gideon pulled down, let him handle himself. If he's really a God, the proof will be in the pudding. And sure enough, there was no proof that they were real gods. Because after that, Gideon assembles his troops. He gets together a band of fighters that were going to move forward with him in God's plan of defeating the enemy. And that's where we're going to end today as we go into chapter 7 next week. Chapter 6 is really the story of God alleviating Gideon's fears. It's the story of God calling a very weak, weak man alleviating his fears and sending him on mission to do what God was calling him to do and equipping him and preparing him and having patience with him 
and allowing him to grow and progress in the process. All right? And so what I want to do is I want to talk about three implications from this passage for us. There could be probably 33 implications. These are the ones we have. But the first one is this. When we look at the life of Gideon. Number one is we can still obey when our faith is weak. We can still obey when our faith is weak. Gideon thought the Lord had weakened his grip on his people. He asks, where are all the wonderful deeds I keep hearing about like when God delivered us from Egypt? He's like, all that's great, right? Back in the day, but what have you done for me lately? What have you done for us lately? If you're still with us, God, you have a funny way of showing it. But notice God's response to Gideon. God's perfectly fine with Gideon's line of questioning. Does that shock you? Do we think that we can't go to God and ask questions? Do we think somehow it's more holy to go God, to go to God and demand an answer? I think we reverse it. I think what God is asking us to do is to ask the right question. Which will then be the catalyst for him revealing an answer to us in his own good timing. So what happens is in our lives is God brings us to these moments of questioning. So that we finally have an ear to hear his answer. Because here's the thing. This is me, okay? When my needs are being met, chances are I'm not wondering where God is. I'm not sweating out if God is still with me and still has all of these things uh, planned for, my, for, for, my, for the greatness of my life. When I feel like everything is going great in my life. It's only when we start feeling a distinct lack of something do we start thinking God doesn't provide very well for us. And what that oftentimes leads us to is prayer. It leads us to prayer. God gets us to a place where we are weak. He strengthens our faith by meeting us in that place. And the way we know our faith is being strengthened is because our actions are one where we finally go back to him in prayer. And that's kind of what we see at the end of chapter 6 with Gideon when he asks for another sign from God. He says, man, I just need another sign. Can you give me another sign? And we notice that God is so patient with Gideon. He's so patient. Gideon knows and he feels like he's pushing the envelope with God. But you know what he's doing? What is Gideon doing? He's engaging with God. That's what he's doing. Well, how the nerve of Gideon to ask for a sign. But he's speaking to the Lord. He's gone back from worshiping the town idol back to inquiring of the Lord, to speaking to the Lord, to asking, God, what do you want from me? And you know what he also is saying? My faith is weak. Help me. Do you think it's an unsanctified prayer for you to go before the Lord every day and say, Lord, my faith is weak? Let me just tell you that that is my prayer in the morning. I go before the Lord in the morning. I say, Lord, I feel condemned right now. I feel that way every morning. God wor- God's working with me in that. But that is what is crushing me when I wake up and I am tired. And essentially what I'm praying is, Lord, strengthen me. 
because I'm weak. And the reason why God allows us to get to those moments of weakness is so that we stop seeing him as weak. So that we stop seeing him as weak. Because we're weak, we assume that God is weak. When we neglect God, it's usually because we're trying to live off the fat of his blessings. And what happens is when those things don't nourish us anymore, we end up blaming him. And so what happens is God starts to mature us. And he matures us through the weakening process. Because maturity is the knowledge of how much our sin weakens our closeness to God. All right? So Gideon, man, they weren't living off the fat of anything anymore. God had weakened them because of their refusal to worship and obey him to the point to where, man, there was nothing left. There was threshing wheat in a wine press. That's as low as it had gotten. That's what was left. And all this goes back to what we refuse to give up, isn't it? Because, you know, at the end of the day, Gideon was still threshing wheat in a wine press. And he refused to stop threshing wheat in a wine press until God came to him and said, no more. But he had gotten to that moment to where he could listen, and he could see God, and he could believe God again. So a lot of this goes back to the things that we refuse to give up, and we feel stuck. Do you feel stuck? You feel stuck, but you don't see that it's the rope of an idol around your neck that has brought you low and has made you small? That's what was going on with Gideon. Because he wasn't obeying God's voice anymore. And God's desire for us is the same. It's that for our desires to be for him. He wants to reorient. He wants to redirect. He wants to transform our desires. And so God, like he was doing with Gideon, he strengthens our faith through acts of obedience, even when we're weak. Here's the thing. Listen, this is what it's saying to us. Gideon never became good enough to obey. He never came to a moment where he was good enough to obey. God was good enough to come to Gideon and to call on Gideon to obedience. That's what's going on here. Because our obedience, your obedience, your obedience sucks. It's never good enough. It's never going to be perfect. Our obedience is offered to God because he is good, not us. You don't earn your right to obey. None of us earn our right to obey. Gideon's faith, oh my gosh, it was so weak. I mean, you got to search through scripture to find obedience and faith that weak. And so is ours. And God strengthens our faith as we obey. That's how he does it. That's the mechanism. That's the method. As we obey, he strengthens our faith. And this is faith, faith in God. Faith in God is understanding that nothing will happen today that is unknown by God, and you will reflect that ginormous truth by obeying him. Here's what Hebrews 11 says about faith and Gideon. A book in the New Testament, it says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, The people of old, guys like Gideon, received their commendation. 
By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. For time would fail me, this is the writer of Hebrews saying this, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. It wasn't just Gideon. All of God's people, always, in every story through the Bible, were made strong out of weakness. So number one is that we can still obey when our faith is weak. And we see that from Gideon. He obeyed with a very weak faith. Number two, our weakness, our weakness It's God's canvas. Our weakness is God's canvas. Gideon was just a weakling when God found him. I mean, dude was just a weakling. It wasn't just that he was weak. He was a weakling. And what happens is what God likes to do is God likes to reduce things to the point that he receives all the glory. And when that happens, we boast and we brag on him. You notice your language is changing when people are talking to you about how your life is going when everything, everything that precedes what you're telling people is saying, and God has done this, and God has been good enough in this season of my life to give me this, and God has granted me this job, and God has been kind to me with this relationship, and God continues to equip me in the knowledge of his word, and God continues to surround me with brothers and sisters and friends that are helping me. God, God, God keeps, God does. That's what happens to our language when we give God the glory, when we begin to get to a place where we only boast and we only brag about him. It's a beautiful place for us to be in. Because when we boast about our own strength, when we boast in our own strength, the question is always circling back to simply this. Can I do it again? Can I do it again and can I keep it going? So when it's your own strength, man, that's constantly what's going to be just diving and knifing into your hearts. Man, I got to keep this up. I got to keep it up, man. I got to keep it going. Real strength is the humility to come before the Lord, trust that he will act, and then wait for him to do it. That doesn't mean we're passive. But it means that we know that in our own strength, those are nothing but feeble house of card attempts to do what God has to empower us to do. So if you're weak, like me, if you've gotten to the end, if you're tired and exhausted and can't maintain whatever it is you've been trying to maintain for even one more second, rejoice. Rejoice. You've been reduced to a blank canvas that God will use to create his imprint of glory in your life. Rejoice in that. Because God has brought you where he wants to bring you. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, but he said to me, Paul knew something about weakness. Paul knew something about discouragement. Paul knew something about pain. Paul knew something about patience. Paul knew something about waiting on the Lord when there was no sign that he was there. This is what Paul said. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon you. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. One of the most phenomenal statements in all of God's word. For when I am weak, then I am strong. R.C. Sproul says this as we get into our third point, which is God works in the wake of our dead idols. God works in the wake of our dead idols. So number one, we can still obey when our faith is weak. Number two, our weakness is God's canvas. And number three, God works in the wake of our dead idols. R.C. says this, if left to ourselves, we would not only gravitate towards, but be swept into idolatry. What happens when we read stories like this is that, man, we just want to get to the victory, don't we? Man, I want to get to the conquering. Man, I want to see Gideon kind of pull out the stops, kick out the jams, and just wreak havoc on the enemy so that I can go away just like thumping my chest and feeling like, oh, that's God's plan for my life. We want to get to victory, man. We are a victorious people. We want to see good prevailing over evil. But the main point, this is what's interesting for us, okay? This is why I chopped this thing in two. The main point is usually found in the very thing that prepares you for victory. Not the victory, but the thing that is preparing you for the victory. The main point of this story is not that Gideon defeated the Midianites that we're going to get into next week. That is not the main point of the story. The main point of this story is when God took the two bulls through Gideon and tore down the family's idols. That's the story. That's the coming back of the people of Israel to what God had called them to, which is obeying only him and worshiping only him. Like there is no victory without that happening, and that's why it follows the course that we see. It's when Gideon took those bulls and he tore down the idols. Israel always fell into ruin time and time again when they worship other gods. And that's the question for all of us this morning as we feel stuck. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say we all feel stuck. There's some stuckiness. I just made up a word. There's some stuckiness here with all of us this morning. You know, I had a guy, I had a convo with a guy who told me, he said this recently. He said, hey, Ronnie, we haven't been able to find a church that fits us. And it's been tough. And we feel, we feel distant and we feel disconnected. And he was telling me about this. And I said, well, I go, you know, where, where, have, you been, you know, where have you been going, you know, while you've been looking? And, and he said, oh, we, 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 don't, we haven't been going anywhere. And I said, oh. I said, well, can I ask why that is? And he said, well, it's hockey season. My son plays hockey for five months on Sunday mornings. Huh? For some of you, it's the question of this. My marriage is struggling. Ronnie, my marriage is, man, it's, it's things are off. Maybe we're in a little bit of a crisis mode. Well, what's, what's the struggle? Tell me. What, can, we, can, we sort of, can we sort of distill it down? What's the deal? Well, I want my things, and he wants his things. Oh, okay. 
Some of you will come up to me and say, Ronnie, I want to be wiser with my money. I want to be more generous to the community, more generous to the church and others. And so my question is, well, what do, what do, you, what do you spend your money on? Oh, all those other things. Okay. So let's start talking about what's going on with the idols that you've created in your life and how those are the things that are causing you to feel distant and stuck in a place where you don't feel like your faith is very strong and God isn't very near to you. Sometimes it's hard to locate our idols because it's who we are. Sometimes it's hard to know what our idols are because they are part and parcel of our identity. It was hard for Gideon to know what his idol was because it was located in the heart of his village. It was who he was. It was like his family of origin. He had never known anything else. He had only heard the stories. Those idols had become a stronghold on the people. So the question here today is what idol remains in your life? And let me just say this. We always want to go physical object with idols, don't Sometimes it's not even a physical object. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's pain. And the identity that we get from that becomes our idol that hinders and weakens our faith and causes us to pull back from being fully obedient to God. At some point, what we see in this story is Gideon feared God more than he loved living out his fears. That's, that's the place that God had brought Gideon to. And so we have to ask ourselves that this morning as we close. Have you become weak enough to see how deeply your idols have weakened your faith? I mean, what is your version of beating wheat in a wine press? I mean, it's kind of a funny story, but like, what is your version of that? What is your version of that? What are you living in fear over? What are the things that you will not let go of? I will not let go of that. I will not relinquish that. Because it's all popping up right now as I'm saying that in your head. All of you are going to a thing, a place, a person, an object, a game. You're all going there right now. What is it? What are the things that you're afraid to give up? Because whatever those are, you're fearing them more than you fear God. Whose name is Jealous. You know what some of his other names also are? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The same God who came to Gideon showed so much love, so much patience, so much mercy and grace is the same God here this morning. I just rant and rave a lot when I preach, but that's the God who also came to Gideon. Was God not good to Gideon by calling him to remove his idols? Was Gideon better off when those idols were destroyed? But can I have stuff, Ronnie? I mean, what is this? Poverty, gospel, talk, give it all up, move to a foreign country, live in a hut, dress in rags. I don't know. 
can I have my stuff? It's interesting that's the question that rises up in our hearts, isn't it? I guess my question is, is it stuff or is it a shrine? What does it become? Because God didn't give you that. You made that. You make your idols. God didn't make those idols for the tribe of Manasseh. He doesn't make my idols. I make my idols. So this morning, I want us to be drawn back to the destroyer of idols, Jesus Christ. Okay? Because Jesus is the greater Gideon. He came in the weakest of all situations to obey God by atoning for our sins. He didn't do it with a sword, as we're going to see next week, but he did it with a wooden cross, which defeated our greatest enemy, sin, and destroyed our idols so that we might be drawn back to worshiping God, our merciful and loving and gracious Father, who is also jealous to be the ruler of our life for our good and for his glory. And that's where we end today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would convict me right now as I preach this, as I preach words that I so often don't live out, as I have idols in my life, Lord, that you are dealing with, that I am having a hard time letting go of and relinquishing my grip. Lord, I pray right now, Lord, that you would give us the measure of weakness and conviction, Lord, so that we are able to break those idols by the strength of your might so that you will strengthen our faith and that in the process, as these idols are being destroyed and crushed and revealed to us, that we would obey you in the process and we would experience the freedom and the relief and having a conscience that's clear before you because despite the pressure, Lord, we are obeying you. Lord, just despite everything else in us wanting to go the other way, you are pulling at us and we are saying, God, not my will, but your will. I'm going to obey. And it's okay that it hurts because it's through that hurting process that you're going to make me into a complete and perfect man and woman before you. Lord, I pray that you would just convict us this morning. Remind us of your grace. We know that one of your names is jealous, but we also know your other names. So everything that you are called and every one of your attributes, Lord, is there for our sanctification. And it's there for us to know something about you so that we know that we need everything that you have and offer us. So Lord, do that work in us, we pray, as weak people that depend on our own weakness and we work from the weakness of our own strength. Lord, allow us to fall back into your strength today as we strive to obey you with the joy that you've given us in Christ. We pray in your name. Amen.